The story of our Savior began long before that iconic silent night, and the lineage of our Lord runs deep. Disguised in the downcast and dejected, and through shadowed sorrow and suffering it starkly stands. Though at times hushed and hidden, the holy remain ushered in, never turning back when others turn their backs, ever and always keeping its kin. The blessed and beautiful, passed over and protected, tying up the promise and wrapping up the gift to be given again and again and again the very face of grace at Christmas. One of the things that I struggle with in life is a misalignment between my expectations and reality. So I have certain expectations of what I'm going to be able to accomplish in the course of a day, and then reality sets in, right? And, and sometimes in the gap between my expectations and reality, I can become irritable and anxious and a little grumpy to be around. And it's not uncommon for my wife to say, like, was it realistic for you to have such high expectations on what you could get done in the course of a day? Or maybe I'll have some expectations on what we as a church could accomplish over six months or over a year. And sometimes those expectations are a little far away from reality. And if I'm not careful in that gap, it can become really discouraging for staff or some of our many volunteers. And then I have expectations for what our Christmas is going to be like as a family. And then reality sets in, right? And some of you are like, that was this morning. I know exactly what you're talking about, right? As followers of Jesus, what do we do when expectations and reality don't match? How do we live faithfully for God in the midst of that space. Do you know the Christmas story tells us how to do that? And specifically one of the characters in the Christmas story. Her name is Mary, and she has a lot to teach us today. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it up to Luke chapter 1. That's where we're going to be today. If you are here at Eden Prairie and you want to use some of the Bibles that we provide for you, it's page 1557 on that blue Bible. For those of you that are joining us online, it's so good to have you. Merry Christmas. We're grateful that you're joining us on this Christmas day. Uh, please do find a Bible uh, wherever you are, and I want to encourage you to be follow along with us in the Word of God. So Luke chapter 1, uh, we are in the midst of wrapping up a series on experiencing Christmas grace. We've been looking at the women who are mentioned in the genealogy Matthew gives to us, and today we come to the final a woman in that genealogy, and it's Mary. Here's the story of how the birth of Jesus was foretold to Mary. It's going to be Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month of 
Elizabeth's pregnancy, Elizabeth was a relative of Mary, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the one to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. She who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word of God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. If this evening the angel Gabriel come and vi- comes to visit you and says to you these words, greetings, you who are highly favored, how high are your expectations for life? Right? Like what kind of car does a highly favored person drive? What kind of job does a highly favored person have? What type of Christmas do you have if you are highly favored by God? What's your marriage look like? What do your families look like? What are your kids, your grandkids doing if you are highly favored by God? I wonder when when the angel Gabriel said that to Mary and she reflected later on it that she was highly favored by God, I wonder what kind of expectations she had for what her life was going to be like. But then reality set in. How did Mary deal with that? And who is Mary, after all? You know, so often I, I, uh, I think Mary is somebody who we pay attention to in the first couple chapters of the gospel, kind of as the origin story of Jesus, and we focus in on her virginity because that has theological significance, and then we're kind of like, okay, now that Jesus is born, Mary, step aside, let's just kind of focus on Jesus. And I understand why that happens, but, but, but oftentimes I think we miss what Mary can teach us. And then unfortunately, I think some other traditions maybe overplay Mary, and they kind of make Mary out to be like a super saint. And it's almost like they take the humanity away from her. But, but in studying Mary, I came across an author. Her, her name is Carolyn Custis James. And she writes a book on the lost women of Scripture, And she has helped me to discover the humanity in Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary was likely 14 or 15 years of age when the angel Gabriel appeared to her. She was engaged to be married to Joseph, and that engagement was legally binding. The only way out of the engagement would have been a legal divorce. And this was the year of preparation for her and Joseph. 
So that meant that the two of them had not been together physically. They were not living together. They were still separated. But Joseph was off preparing a place for Mary, probably at his father's house or in his father's estate. He would have a room or a home created for them. And then once that was ready, now he would come and he would get his bride, Mary, and then the two of them would go and live together. And so this engagement that she had to Joseph likely would have been arranged by the family years before. So Mary would have grown up knowing that Joseph was going to be her husband. And as a woman growing up in that part of the world, she would have had hopes and dreams about what life would have been like, about how they would have had a simple existence in Nazareth, about how they would have hoped to raise children and teach them the way of of Yahweh and and all the customs of, of their people. And that would have been life. And then Gabriel showed up and gave her the announcement, and everything in her life changed. And I have to wonder what the conversation between Mary and Joseph was like when she told him that she was pregnant and that the child was from God. We know he didn't believe her because we know from other parts of Scripture that Joseph was planning to secretly divorce her, which means that conversation must not have gone well. What was it like for Mary to look into the face of Joseph and watch his face fall as she gave him the news? and realized that the trust he had in her was was broken. I I wonder in that moment if Mary thought to herself, this is the life of somebody who's highly favored. And then Mary would have had a conversation with her parents about the fact that she was with child. And I wonder, did her mom cry and not happy tears? Did her dad yell? Did people in the town start to whisper and were rumors spreading? Did suspicion about what really happened to Mary begin to grow. And, and I wonder as, as people would step the other way to go out of their way to not run into Mary as she was walking around town or, or, or some of the tension she may have felt in her family, did she think to herself, this is the life of somebody who's highly favored? And then when it was time for her and Joseph to go down to Bethlehem because he had to register for a census and she in her ninth months of pregnancy had to take by foot or by donkey a really treacherous journey all the way down to Bethlehem and then there give birth to her firstborn son away from family, likely giving birth to Jesus in a cave where animals were kept. And in that day, it was customary that when you gave birth to your firstborn, women in your family who had given birth would be there to coach you. There would be a midwife so you knew what you were doing. Mary probably didn't have any of that. The only person there to help with the burst was Joseph. And let's be honest, he was not helpful, right? He had no idea what he was doing. And I wonder, in the midst of that loneliness, did Mary think this is what it means to be highly favored by God? And then a couple years later, in the middle of the night, they have to pack everything up that they own and and run away to Egypt to flee, to, to, to save Jesus from King Herod. And this is going to Egypt. This was the place that their ancestors came out of. They left the promised land to go back to the place of Egypt and slavery because they were trying to escape someone who was seeking the death of their son. And as Mary fled and became a refugee, did she think to herself, this is the life of somebody who's highly favored? And then several years later, Jesus is is a grown man and he is into ministry and he's devoted to ministry 
And, and Mary is likely proud of Jesus, and she understands that he has a special call on his life, but he's not home. And likely at this point in Mary's life, Joseph would have been significantly older than she was, and he was probably dead. She was likely a widow, trying to take care of the rest of their children, but her firstborn son was like never home. And, and I wonder if she missed Jesus. And there's one account where Jesus and, 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 or Mary and some of, of the rest of her sons go to Jesus. They want to engage with him and talk to him, and he's doing ministry, so they come outside of where he is, and they send a messenger in, and, and they say to Jesus, hey, your, your mother and your brothers are here. And the message comes back that Jesus turns to people in the crowd, and he says, the people who do the will of my father, those who obey the word of God, they are my mothers and my brothers. And when Mary heard those words, would that have been confusing to her as a mom? Would she have wrestled with what did that mean? Was this the life of a highly favored one? And then on that awful Friday, when Mary stood at the foot of the cross and she watched her baby boy be tortured to death, accused of things that he did not do, and she watched him breathe his last, did the thought go through her mind, is this the life of a highly favored one? And I do not ask that question because I am speculating or I believe that Mary ever questioned God. In fact, in scripture, we have no evidence that Mary ever became bitter, that, that Mary ever turned her back, that Mary was, was not faithful. We, 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 all we see from Scripture is Mary being incredibly resilient in her faith and being a servant of God and, and, and following faithfully what God had called her to do. But we, we have to recognize that this would have been hard for her. Here she is, the highly favored one of God, and yet her life was anything but favorable. How did she do it? How do you live as a highly favored one of God in the midst of an unfavorable life? Well, Mary teaches us. And here's a little insight into Mary. In response to everything the angel said to her, her response is, is simple, it is straightforward, but it's profound. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be as, as you have said. And when she says, I am the Lord's servant, she's responding to the statement that the angel makes in verse 37. The, the angel says this, he says, for no word of God will ever fail. And certainly that statement, no word of God will ever fail, is in specific reference to Mary, that she's gonna give birth to a son named Jesus. And it was also in reference to what was happening with Elizabeth, her relative. But there's a larger statement behind that where the angel is declaring no word of God will ever fail. It's a grander statement. And Luke, by including that in here, wants us to understand that what made Mary able to deal with her life and follow faithfully God in the midst of her hardship was Mary understood that she was part of something bigger. And Luke actually gives a clue to us about this a few chapters later. So I want you, I want you to do is, is flip open to, or flip over to Luke chapter three, verse 23. 
So Luke uh, is spending the first couple chapters of his gospel setting up the, the, the history of Jesus, the, uh, the historicity, the, uh, the origin story about how Jesus came to be. And right before he transitions to Jesus' ministry, he gives to us an interesting thing, a genealogy, which is just the, the, the list of descendants from whom Jesus came. But what's interesting about the genealogy that Luke gives to us in Luke chapter 3 is that it's a little bit different from the genealogy that Matthew gives us in Matthew chapter 1. So in the Gospels, we have two different genealogies, but they don't exactly line up. Why not? And what does that have to do with Mary? So Matthew, uh, unlike Luke, is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. So when he writes his genealogy, he begins with Father Abraham and then traces the genealogy of Jesus from Abraham to Jesus. Because he's making a point. He's trying to let people know that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that would be the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. But Luke is writing to a larger audience, a more Gentile audience. And so Luke is, is giving to us a broader perspective of who Jesus is. And rather than start with Abraham, he actually starts with Jesus. And then Luke works backwards all the way to Abraham, but then he keeps going. And he goes all the way back. Why does Luke do that? And what does this have to do with Mary? Well, we find a clue in Luke 3.23, how the genealogy begins. Let me show this to you. Here's what Luke says. He says, now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now, we read this in English, but if, if we were to read this in the original Greek, there's something that's happening with some of the articles of the language about how Joseph is described. Now, ancient Greek didn't have uh, parentheses or um, uh, a lot of punctuations that we use in English. So the way to think about this verse is this way, that uh, Jesus, parentheses, so it was thought of Joseph, was the son of Heli. So Luke is saying that Jesus is the son, not of Joseph, but of Heli. Why is he saying that? Well, the reason that Luke is, is making that point is he is stressing for us that Jesus is not from Joseph. And the reason he wants us to understand that is he wants us to know that Jesus was from God, that Jesus is fully God, but is also fully man. Well, so who's Healy? Well, Healy is the grandfather of Jesus. But not on his dad's side. It's on his mom's side. You see, in ancient genealogies, whenever you say son of, it just meant male descendant. So son of could be grandson, could be great-grandson, or direct descendant, son of. So, so Jesus is the male descendant or the son of Healy, who was the father, I believe, of Mary which means Luke is giving to us the genealogical record of Mary's family that never happened in ancient literature. Why would Luke do that? Why would Luke tell us about Mary's genealogy? Because he's trying to make for us a profound point. First of all, Luke got all of his evidence for his gospel by eyewitness accounts. It's likely that he spoke to Mary directly about this. This is probably the genealogical record that Mary gave to him. 
It was common for Jewish families of that day before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD to have these genealogical records. So Mary probably handed it to him. But why include it? Well, he's including it because he he wants us to understand that, that Jesus wasn't from Joseph, but from Mary. And the reason why is if you continue the line, that Jesus was the son of Heli. And then it goes on for all of these verses to all these generations of all these different people, most of whom are names you have never seen and will never see anywhere else in Scripture. And then you come across a few that you do know, but you keep going back and you keep going back. And all the way at verse 38, we finally get to the end of the genealogical record, and it says, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And here's the clue. Luke wants us to start with Mary and go all the way back to the Garden of Eden to God and to Adam and to Eve. Why is that? Well, let's follow Luke there. Let me just read for you one verse in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is a pivotal point in Scripture where Adam and Eve have uh, chosen to rebel against God's word. They have taken the fruit that they were not to take, and uh, that starts this reaction that changes all of humanity and all of creation. They were deceived by the serpent. And so God, in, in Genesis chapter 3, is starting to issue the curses, the consequences of what's going to happen because humanity has chosen sin versus God's word. And in the midst of the curses, uh, God is cursing the serpent who deceived Eve about what is to come. But in verse 15, there's a little promise that gets nudged right in here in the midst of the curses. And here's what God says in Genesis 3.15, to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring, or in the Hebrew, your seed, and hers, her offspring, her seed. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And the he that's being referred to there is the long-awaited Messiah, the one that was going to finally restore everything that had gone wrong. We were going to put it back to right. The serpent, which now had control through sin and death of the entire creation, was now going to be released and and thrown off, and and then people were going to have freedom and, and restoration, and healing was going to come through the offspring that is promised here. And the point that I want to make to you is that the offspring was coming to be an offspring of the seed, not of man, but of woman. So why does Luke trace the genealogical record of Mary? Because he wants us to know that Jesus is the seed of Mary, not Joseph, because he is the seed of Eve. He's the one, the long-awaited offspring that will finally make all things right. Which means Mary somehow understood that the baby that was growing in her womb was part of the large plan of salvation that God had initiated right in Genesis. Genesis 3.15 is often referred to as the proto-evangelium. It's just a fancy way of saying the very first good news. That right when sin enters the world, God gives a promise of good news, and every generation that has come since the fall has been longing for that moment. Every generation had wondered, is this the generation, is this the moment that finally the offspring of the woman will come and make it all right? 
And generation after generation, prophet after prophet, came and went and did not see this. They knew it was coming. They longed for it. All creation has been groaning for this moment. And finally, the seed appears to a humble 14-year-old girl in Nazareth. To a common family that wasn't famous, that nobody knew, that didn't deserve this, but was chosen by God to be the one in whom and through whom the redemption of all humanity would come. And Mary didn't understand all of that, but she understood some of it. And that's where she understood that she was this highly favored one of God. Do you know that we have a lot in common with Mary? Mary had God literally inside of her womb. I mean, she was, we say she was with God, like she, God was with her literally. And do you know that the same is true for us? That God is with us? That if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Which means God is Emmanuel, God is with us. We carry the presence of God around with us in a very similar way that Mary carried the presence of God around. And that all of the hopes and the dreams of all of the prophets about what it was going to be like when God's spirit would dwell within humanity, we get to experience what all of the prophets of old longed for. Do you know that? That you experience something that the prophet Moses didn't. That Abraham and that Isaac and that Jacob and that Joseph and, and that Moses and Joshua and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel and Micah and Malachi and all of these prophets for all of these years had longed for this moment when God's spirit was going to do a new thing in creation and it was going to allow humanity to be dwelt by the Holy Spirit. They longed for it. They didn't see it. They didn't experience it. And it is our reality, which makes us kind of like Mary. Or in the words of the, apostle, of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians, it makes us like this. Let me, let me read to you from Ephesians 1, just three verses. This is what Paul says about us and the significance of us. He says, praise be to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, listen to this, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Do you know that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms this Christmas? God has given everything to you. Has blessed us with, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us, just like he chose Mary, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Do you know that you were chosen to be a recipient of God's Holy Spirit? Do you know that? Before the creation of the world, when, when time was orchestrated, God said, you will be one who will experience my Holy Spirit. That God decided you were going to be one who would receive salvation. That you were going to be one who would know the fulfillment of the long-awaited promise. That God chose you and me by name to be the recipients 
of this long-awaited promise. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. And then verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, and I want you to listen to this last phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And that phrase, that he has freely given us in the one he loves, you could, you could translate that in the, in the Greek when, when Paul wrote this, to be that you have been bestowed upon by God, that God has bestowed his grace on you. Do you know another way of saying God has bestowed his grace on you? It's saying that you are highly favored. Paul is saying that you are highly favored. This Greek word shows up two times in the entire New Testament. One time right here, the other time, Luke 1.28, when the angel says to Mary, you are highly favored. Which means the Apostle Paul says that you and I, because we've been recipients of God's Holy Spirit, are considered by God to be highly favored. Just like Mary. But oftentimes our lives don't feel like they're highly favored. Oftentimes we go through our life and we think, is this the life of a highly favored one? Because your marriage is a mess. Because you have tension in the relationships with your kids. That some of your kids or your grandkids are not going to call you today on this Christmas day because there is a significant break in the relationship. And it has shattered your heart. That many of us are, are in jobs where we feel stuck and we question our significance and our value. That some of us are struggling with mental health issues that, that make it feel like we are not favored at all. Or we have physical health issues. We feel like our body is failing us and letting us down and it's wave after wave after wave and it seems like it never ends. And it seems like our life is anything but favorable. So if we're like Mary, how did Mary live as a highly favored one of God in the midst of a life that was not always favorable? And I want to let Mary answer that question herself. She responds to all that had happened in her life with what we refer to as Mary's song. And I'm going to close just by reading these words to you. Listen to them. This is Mary's response, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servants. From now all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him for generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm, he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has remembered his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. What did you not hear in her song? 
anything about her own life or condition. Everything that Mary was focused on was what God was doing to redeem his people. Mary understood that she was a participant, a chosen and willing participant in God's redeeming work. That the kingdom that was going to come would come through her sacrifice. And she understood that there was a bigger movement of God that was happening. And so Mary focused not on what she was going through, but on what was to come. And that's how she made it through. As a highly favored one of God, living in an unfavorable life. And that's what Mary teaches us. That for us to live as highly favored ones of God, our focus can never be on what we are going through, difficult as it may be. We don't focus on what we're going through. We focus on what is to come. God's kingdom. Salvation. That one day we're going to be with God in his presence forever. And specifically, Mary focused on who was to come. And that needs to be our focus as well. Because one day, Jesus will come for us. Or we'll go to him. And we'll be with him forever. And so when we focus not on what it is we're going through, but on the long-awaited Messiah who is going to come, not the first time, but come the second time, we understand how to live as a highly favored one of God. And that allows us to navigate a world where there's a difference between our expectations, our hopes, and our dreams, and our realities. And it's in that space where we experience God's grace. Father, we are grateful for the long-awaited Jesus. Lord, creation has been longing for salvation and redemption and renewal. And Father, you chose and choose to use the most humble of vessels. Father, many of us are like the names that we may scan in the genealogical record of Mary. Father, we're going to live simple lives. We're going to pass on from this world and a few generations from now, people will not know us aside from a name in a family tree or an old memory book. And yet, Father, you have chosen us by name to be recipients of your spirit, to be a participant with you in helping to bring your kingdom to the world around us. And so, Father, we, we, we just, we, we pause this Christmas to say, Father, we're, we're so sorry for the times that our focus has just been about all the things that we're going through. And, Father, that, that we've missed out on the larger truth of, of what you're doing. And, Father, on this Christmas, can we just sit and enjoy the gift that you have given to us that we know the long-expected 
Jesus. And Father, may the truth that you have chosen us for this time and this truth be something that makes our hearts glad this Christmas day. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. It's in Jesus' name we pray.